learning. And Heather, I agree, I'm old school too. So let's go with that. So um, it's so good to be here, and uh, thank you for having me. And uh, the last couple of times I've told you some ancient history from my own life, so I want to dip back and tell you uh, a little more history from way back when. Um, so it was the year after I graduated from university, and I didn't quite know what I was doing, and I hit the fall and ended up finding a job at Eaton's Department Store, which of course doesn't even exist anymore. And um, then I got an invitation from some friends who had been in Vancouver for a number of years, moved back to Seattle. They'd been involved with uh, Young Life here and Young Life there, and they had taken on a position uh, to be the host couple of Fellowship House in Washington, D.C. Uh, Fellowship was a ministry, is a ministry that works with uh, congressmen and, and others in Washington, D.C., um, drawing people together in prayer and reaching out and uh, uh, sharing good news. And so they had gone to be the host couple at this house, a beautiful mansion in the heart of the embassy district in Washington, D.C. When they got there, they found that their cook had quit, uh, which was an important element of what they did because they hosted all sorts of meetings. And so they uh, phoned me and asked if I would be willing to come uh, because I had cooked for the last previous summers at uh, Camp Up the Coast run by Young Life called Malibu. So I said, Sure. And so I went, and uh, getting there was a whole story in itself, which I won't tell you at the moment. But once I was there, we did all of these different uh, events, some very small, some much bigger. And we were involved in uh, kind of uh, behind the scenes, in a sense, of hosting people in the house as the presidential prayer breakfast that year was put on. Uh, Jimmy Carter was president. I didn't get to meet him, but uh, we had people that stayed in the house that did. And during that week of uh, the presidential prayer breakfast, we hosted a number of events, and one was for Native American leaders uh, who were to come and meet together, and I was to put on a meal. So Al and Doris, who were the host couple, uh, Doris decided it'd be really good to have a salmon meal, which I had done at Malibu once a week for lots of people, and so we got some friends to bring salmon from the West Coast here uh, to D.C., and uh, I started preparing the meal. So there were two problems. The first is that uh, the Native American leaders weren't so good at actually RSVPing. Uh, we understood there were going to be 60 of them. Uh, when they arrived, there were 100. We prepared for 60. Uh, the other issue was I didn't quite understand the uh, ovens uh, very well. And so I put all of these salmon in, and uh, ample time, it was going to be ready. And it came time to serve all these now 100 people, 40 more than we had expected. And I pulled out the first salmon, and half of it was cooked and half of it wasn't. So I decided to cut off the portion that was cooked and start with it and put the rest back in, which was fine, and it, was, it eventually got cooked. But the problem was that I had kind of, in my mind, portioned out how many portions I needed to get out of each salmon to serve the 60 people, which had now expanded into 100. So by the time we were actually serving, I had no idea how much I was giving to each one and how much I should. And so <laughs> I can remember Dora standing, hovering, and kind of hoping that it was all going to work out, and I was kind of sweating, and we kept on bringing more out of the, the ovens and putting it there and serving plate after plate. We got to the end, and we'd served a hundred. I think they only got about this much. No, I, 
But Doris made the comment afterwards. She said, that was like the feeding of the 5,000. So I've got to say, it was relief for me. But the story we're going to look at this morning is remarkable. Remarkable. So the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus prior to the resurrection. It is the only miracle of Jesus that is actually reported in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them reported. Now think about all the other miracles you can think of. Not walking on water. Not calming the storm. Not raising the dead. Not healing the paralytic. Remember who got lowered from the ceiling in front of Jesus. Not casting out demons into the pigs and leaving the demon-possessed man and his sane and his right mind. Not giving sight to the blind man. None of those are reported in all four of the Gospels. Only this one. This is a significant event. It's in each of the Gospels. And each of the four Gospel writers give us basically the same details. 5,000 were fed. 5,000 men, that is, not counting women and children. So it's up to uh, potentially 20,000 people that got fed at this event. All four of them tell us it was five loaves and two fish. That's all there was. People sat down on the ground. Jesus prayed. He began to break the bread and distribute it. He did the same with the fish, distributed it. They all ate. They were all satisfied. The leftovers were collected. And how many basketfuls? Twelve. We all know the story. All of those details are in all four of the Gospels. But there are also a number of different insights which come out in the different Gospels. It's fascinating to read. They round out the story more than we would have otherwise. So Mark and Luke both let us know that this event happened immediately after the disciples had returned from a mission trip. And now they've returned. Mark adds the detail that when they reported to Jesus what had happened during their mission trip, there were so many other people coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat. And so Jesus decided that he would take them away to somewhere quiet. Now, our story tells us how that worked out, but that was the intention. Matthew gives us the further that Jesus went with his disciples to the far shore. And then he very deliberately adds in a detail and says this. The Jewish Passover feast was near. The other gospel writers don't tell us that. John didn't need to put this in, but he does so deliberately. And it seems that this is his way of alerting us to the fact that this event may have some connections with the great Exodus miracle from the Old Testament. And it sets us up to remember that God himself gave manna, bread from heaven, to the Israelites as they were traveling in the wilderness. And that's going to set us up for the theme later in this chapter where Jesus himself says he is the bread of life. But we're not going to get there this morning. You can look at that yourself later. As Matthew, Mark, and Luke unfold the story, they put the initiative in the disciples' hands. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, it's late. Send these people away so they can get something to eat. There's a note of irritation in their voices. But John, he unfolds the story differently. He starts the story with Jesus. Now, it's not a contradiction. 
It simply has to do with his focus, what he's focused on and what he wants us to see. And so what he does is he initially skips right past the question of the disciples, and he starts his story with Jesus asking a question of them rather than the other way around. Because John's got something that he wants us to see. So Jesus specifically singles out Philip, and he asks him this. He says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? So Philip is actually a logical one to ask. Uh, Philip, together with Peter and Andrew also, were from the town of Bethsaida, which uh, is in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and it was the closest community to the place where they likely were on the east side of Galilee. And so Philip's a logical one to ask. He would know as well as any the surrounding area. Uh, Philip, incredulous, just balks at the idea, and he says this, He says, eight months' wages would not be by enough bread for each one to have a bite. But then Andrew, he comes forward with this young boy who happens to have brought a lunch with him, (laughs) the only one who thought ahead. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. And Andrew says, there's this, but how far will they go among so many? So without hesitating at that point, Jesus then tells the people, get the people to sit down on the ground. He then takes the bread and he gives thanks. Very likely he used a very traditional Jewish prayer. He would have said, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings bread from the earth. And then he broke it. And he distributed it. And John tells us that they got as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when everyone had had their fill, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And they did. And there were 12 basketfuls. Now, there are many, many things uh, that could be gleaned from this story. But this morning, what I want us to do is to take this story as a case study in faith. To see it, again, as a parable, as it were, about prayer. Anybody need encouragement in praying? Case study that has particular application. Because in this season, I bet you that you as a congregation, and those of us that love this community as we stand alongside, we're asking questions in prayer like, Lord, what are you wanting to do here? We're praying for you to sustain us. We're praying for the leadership team. Uh, We're praying for new pastoral leadership. We're praying for renewal and refreshment in this season. That you would continue to use this congregation in the way that you're wanting to. We're praying for a renewed direction in this season. We're praying for increase of hope, dear Lord. Portland, George Fox, and got in touch with them, and they said, uh, yeah, it's true, but uh, I'm sorry, you're two weeks too late. So she found another one, Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. She phoned them, and she's, the woman said, oh, I'm sorry, you're two weeks past the deadline. But if you send the application right now, we'll slip you in. So we did, and we thought, amazing. And we thought this was just a shoe-in. There's this exchange program. It works. And then we discovered we weren't going to hear anything until the earliest beginning of April. 
and we just have to wait and just see, is what they said. We started getting the sense that maybe this wasn't as much of a clinched deal as we thought it was going to be. So Patrick then applied for school in his own right, got accepted there, uh, got a scholarship in his own right for $19,000. Wow! Got financial aid for another $14,000 each year. Wow! But tuition down there is $47,000 U.S. And we thought, this is, uh, we can't, he's got to get this exchange program scholarship. So anyway, we ended up going to a, an open house they had at the end of April. We still didn't know, but we thought we'd better go and see what the school's like. Well, we fell in love with it. More importantly, Patrick fell in love with it. And so we had a conversation with a few people, and we discovered, actually, this exchange program is not a shoe-in. The previous year, they didn't award it to anyone. Zero. And for this year, they were rewarding five. And there were 40 to 50 applicants. Wow, my goodness. Then we thought, well, maybe if he doesn't get it this year, he could get it next year. And we ended up talking to the woman that was the head of admissions, and she said, I'm sorry, if he doesn't get it this year, uh, he won't get it. And so we got in the car on the night after this open house and drove away, and we loved the school, and we were so excited about him going, but we thought, this does not look very possible. And we got as far that night as Bellevue. We stayed in a hotel, and I remember lying in bed in the dark, and I prayed, and Sarah prayed, and then Patrick, with great passion, prayed, dear God, would you please open this up? And the next day, we were driving around. We were going to do a little bit of shopping before we came back home. And Patrick said, you know, how do you know whether it's God's will or not? He said, I don't really want to go into huge debt. How do I know? And Sarah gave him the scripture from Proverbs 3, uh, 5 and 6, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And um, so we were talking about that. And then uh, as I was talking with Patrick this week, he remembers that we prayed right at that point in the car. And after we prayed, Sarah had her phone, and this email came into her phone. It was copied to her. It was to Patrick. It was from Whitworth saying, you've got the scholarship. <laughs> and we rejoiced. So I've got to say, I wish that all of our prayers were that successful <laughs> and that concise and that compacted. But the fact is that it was drawn out enough that we understood the impossibility. And then the Lord came through. We will never forget. I guarantee Patrick will never forget. The Lord used it to test us. And so in this moment in the life of Granville, I'd like to say to you, it's for your good. It's for your good. The Lord is doing things in you as members of this congregation that could not happen otherwise. Allow him to test you. Allow it. And ready yourselves to engage. So that's the first thing. The Lord tested Philip. The second thing is that Jesus knew beforehand what he was going to do. That's exactly what John says in the text. He says uh, he already had in mind what he was going to do. I've got to say, this is a pretty powerful insight when it comes to prayer. And I need to remember this hugely. I bet you do too. How often do we decide to pray 
and see it as if it's all our own initiative, you know? Or more striking yet, that it's important for us to convince the Lord that it's important to Him as it is important to us. Oh Lord, I don't know if you've noticed, but my family is in great need at the moment about boom, 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 boom. Or, dear Jesus, your church here is having some challenges and we really want you to take this as seriously as we do. So when we're tempted to think like that, don't forget the -the behind-the-scenes insight from this amazing story. He already had in mind what he was going to do. So each occasion to faith is one that is actually provided by the Lord himself. And when we see the need and when we're confronted with the agonizing gaps, when we become aware of those places where his kingdom really needs to come, his will really needs to be done, it is a moment for us to be drawn into his work, to experience him more deeply. Uh, However, he has chosen already to work it out because he's already there. He already had in mind what he was going to do. So how does that impact prayer? I'd say it builds faith pretty much right from the start. If we really grab hold of that, he's got it in hand. We've just become aware of the need, but he's he's seen it. He already knows what he's going to do. But also he's drawing me into it and allowing me to see it. It's an opportunity of testing. And so I I think I need to pray hanging on to two things. First, hanging on to the question, Lord, what is it you are actually doing here? What is it you are wanting to do? What is it you've decided to do? And keeping myself as open as I can to him as I pray. And the second thing is that as he's made it known to me, as he's put the weight on my heart, to understand that he has intentionally brought me in. And so my gut response in confronting the situation, the need, the crisis, whatever it is, my gut response is a pretty good place for me to start in praying because he's involved me. But I put it together with the question, Lord, what are you doing? And I engage in prayer, but I keep open to him. This is what I want to learn from this story. Third thing, Philip's response. Did you notice how Philip responded to the test? Bet you did, and I know I have been there before. Any of the rest of you? Philip chose to fully embrace impossibility. That's what he did. And that, of course, is the clear-sighted evaluation of the circumstance at hand. The need that is before them, is completely out of line with the available resources. And what he does in his own mind is he's a mathematician, he's an accountant, he does a quick survey and he announces that 200 denarii, that's what John writes in the Greek text, 200 denarii would not be enough to feed this crowd. Now, a denarius was equivalent to one day's wage. So basically, this is 200 days' wages, which is about eight months' worth, which my version of the NIV, that's the translation they give. Eight months' wages. And then Philip, ever the realist, adds in, uh, even if we had that, it would not be by enough bread for each one to have a bite. So Philip responds to the test that Jesus has drawn him into by going with what he sees. And that's where he gets stuck. And his faith trips 
over the reality of the moment. So here's another story. About 19 years ago, I was on the pastoral staff here at Granville, and we had the sense as a family, Sarah and I, that God was calling us into something else. We love this congregation, but we sensed he was calling us into something else. And I fully expected he was going to give us the something else before we left, but he didn't. And I came to the conclusion that he was calling us to just get out of the boat and get on with it, even though we didn't know what was coming next. And I've got to say that, the, uh, among other things, uh, the enormity of the salary gap at that point was big and real and absolutely daunting. And how was my family going to be provided for in the midst? But we went for it. We didn't embrace the impossibility. We went for it. And the Lord remarkably provided in fact, uh, me and my siblings all got a legacy over that next year from a cousin, an older cousin, who had died. Uh, none of us had expected we'd get the legacy. It was significant. And my sister Sue said to me at that point, the reason we're all getting this legacy is because you need it. <laughs> it was true. So I've got to say that right now, I'm on the other side of the impossibility barrier. And I've got a couple of people in my sights at the moment, in my heart, in my life, uh, that I'm praying for, that humanly speaking, uh, their issues are absolutely insurmountable. And I find myself in prayer, I don't know whether you find this, but I find myself in prayer often backing away from the prayer even as I'm praying. My tendency is to embrace the impossibility. And I have to lift my sights again to the Lord. So as you pray for Granville, don't follow Philip's example. As you pray for yourself and your circle and your concerns, don't embrace Philip's example. The, the fourth thing I notice in the story is that Andrew expresses faith. Now, you might want to challenge me on that, and I've got to say it is my perspective on the story. Faith, really? but I think he does. Andrew jumps in. It is somewhat tentative. In fact, I would say it's very tentative, but he actually pushes the boundaries of faith, at least pushes the boundaries of his faith. He looks at the impossibilities of the circumstance and sees them just as clearly as Philip did, but he also sees one slight potential, perhaps maybe possibility. And somewhat sheepishly, I think, he brings it forward. He says, look, Jesus, here's this young guy. He's got five, five loaves and two fish. Now, it's not exactly mountain-moving faith by any means. But I actually find that encouraging personally, even when I don't feel I can move mountains. And in fact, the question he poses could be heard as unbelief. What he says is, how far will they go among so many? But I hear in that the beginnings of faith. And Andrew brings his question, along with the fish and the loaves and the young boy, to the Lord with a twinge of hope that these might possibly be touched by miracle. And I think I hear tentative faith in him. 
This is mustard seed-sized faith. And you bring it to Jesus. That's all you can do at these moments. Which means you have eyes open to the impossibilities, but eyes opened to the faith possibilities in the midst. What about this, Lord? Could you do something with this? Here's this church, Lord. Here's what we've got at the moment. Here's the gaps. You're able. You can stretch. You can multiply. You can overwhelm lack of resources with your infinite resource. Here's what we have, Lord. Here's our need. Here we are. Can you use us? I know you're praying. I want to invite you in a fresh way to enter into prayers for Granville. Not tripping on the impossibilities that you may see, but taking faith in hand and presenting it to the Lord. So remember this story. And I want to invite you in your own circle, in your own concerns, the, own, the things that weigh on you that the Lord has put before you intentionally I want to invite you to not let faith trip on the realities of the moment, but to bring it before the Lord and say, will you work here? Will you work here? Here I am. Take the little I've got. So here's the end of the story. And I want to give it to you in four bullet points. One, Andrew asked the question. Two, all the disciples saw the answer. Three, they never, ever, ever got over it, Philip included. And four, believers like us have been reading about it ever since. So let's join together in praying and ask the Lord to strengthen faith in us for the things that he's put before us. Mm -hmm.